You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello and welcome to this edition of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. We often hear that today's CEOs face almost irresistible pressure to maximise short-term results. Where this pressure comes from is a matter of hot debate. But what we do know for sure is that building a business for the long term is a tough management challenge. My guests today are Mike Usim, who's a professor at the Wharton School of Business, and Rodney Zemmel, who's a senior partner in McKinsey's New York office. They are among the co-authors of a new book with the title Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy. The meat of the book is a series of case studies and conversations that lay out the very practical steps taken by some leading CEOs to resist short-term pressures and set their organisations on a path to long-term success. I met with Mike and Rodney in New York to talk about what it really takes to go long. Rodney, Mike, thanks very much for being here today. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. We're here to talk about managing for the long term, but let's start talking about short-termism. So to be devil's advocate, you know, Rodney, is it really a problem? It's certainly not a new problem. You can find newspaper articles from the 1920s and who knows even earlier talking about the perils of short-termism, the rise of short-termism, and so on. That said, we do think there's good evidence that we're in a more of a short-term epidemic right now than we have been for a long time. Uh, so 87% of executives and directors in our surveys feel the most performance pressure over a two-year time horizon rather than a longer-term time horizon. And actually 99%, and in some more recent analysis, more than 100% of earnings for the S&P 500 are spent on dividends and on buybacks. So certainly more companies, more directors, and, uh, and more investors are feeling the pressure for short-term, for short-termism than they have in the recent past. And dividends and buybacks matters because? It's a sign of companies uh, not having the confidence to invest in the long term and instead handing the cash right back to their shareholders now. Now, there's nothing wrong with giving cash to shareholders. That's what you're supposed to do if you're a company. But the idea that you would give all of your current cash back to shareholders rather than investing in the right. long term obviously creates some doubts. And to what extent is this about public markets? I think David Rubenstein points out in the introduction to the book that actually the number of U.S. listed companies has halved, I think he says, over the last 20 years. So there are certainly more companies appear to be sort of retreating from public markets. Is this a public market phenomenon? It's a really complicated issue. I end up feeling that it's a bit like one of those Agatha Christie novels where everyone's pointing the finger at everybody else as the, uh, the, uh, the culprit. Executives uh, and many boards will tell you it's the public markets, it's the sell-side analysts who are right, who are, who are looking for uh, looking for news and who are asking questions about uh, this quarter's uh, this quarter's profits. It's, uh, it's short-term traders, it's day traders, uh, or even worse, it's activist investors, um, and it's the markets who are, who are putting pressure that it's hard for companies to stand up to. What the investors will say 
is we actually would value companies who are able to better articulate their long-term strategy and better articulate their long-term capital allocation. And if you look at investor behavior, it's hard to say that for most investors, they really are looking to, um, to favor the short-term over the long-term. The reality is if you use a discounted cash flow method, 70 to 90% of the value of most companies is beyond a three-year time horizon. And most investors realize that. The other reality is that if you look at who owns stocks in the US, 75% of them are still owned by what we would classify as long-term investors. So that's either index funds, uh, that's retail investors who aren't day traders, or it's value funds. So while I'm sure the investing community has a role to play in this, and the data on public markets, uh, the shrinkage of public number of companies in public markets is really compelling, it seems that there's a bit more to it than just blaming the markets. Rodney's reference, by the way, to the fact that uh, three quarters of, of equity assets are kind of there for the long run, either in an index fund or just uh, uh, the uh, the orphans and the widows, as are sometimes called, the individual stockholder. That says that the issues and how to grapple with them, in our view, comes down to what happens in the boardroom and the executive suite. There's this wonderful Jack Welsh quote in the book, mm. which is, Anybody can run a company short. Anybody can run a company with a long term. But the reality is, and the hard part about management, is getting that balance. And that is why we wrote the book, uh, Go Long. I think we found a lot of research, some from McKinsey, some from elsewhere, um, on um, the value of being a long-term investor and why it's better for companies to focus on the long term. But the actual practical guide to how management teams and CEOs should do it doesn't exist. Um, I don't know that we've uh, that we've written it, but the book certainly explores CEOs who've made uh, who've who've made those decisions and how they did it, and hopefully has some some useful lessons for people thinking about that trade-off. One of the things that jumps out at me, actually, a number of the case studies in the book, I mean, the CEOs had to buy themselves the sort of strategic flexibility to invest for the long term by sometimes doing some quite painful things in the short term. I think Ford is is the, you know, that was a turnaround situation. Yeah. Alan Mulally at Ford had to cut a lot of costs, <laughs> lay off a lot of people. But he did it with growth in mind. It wasn't a sort of asset stripping, just running the company for cash. It actually had a, you know, there was a long-term objective behind it. Well, to pick up on that, our method of thinking about how do we transcend this seeming problem of a lot of pressures for a short term but companies want to build for the long term is to go to people who have managed to get the short and the long. There aren't a whole lot, but they're enough to compose a, a primer on, on how to do it. And Alan Mulally was recruited by Bill Ford, William Ford, uh, executive chair of the Ford board, um, a couple years before the financial crisis of 08, 09. And uh, even though it was that lull before the storms, he quickly realized that the company was going to post a $17 billion loss the following year. And this is even before the crisis um, took everybody down. And so he set forward a strategy to solve the immediate challenges. How are we going to pay the bills with a $17 billion loss? He went and got a credit line for $23 billion, pushed his engineers to bring out better models that would sell better. Uh, so in the short term, he did take some significant uh, losses, but all wrapped around a strategy for recovery and getting through whatever might lie ahead. So what I think is interesting when you compare and contrast the different stories uh, that, we, that we covered in the book is there are some 
dramatic turnaround stories. The Ford story may be the most dramatic. Um, But there was a very nice quote um, from uh, from George Buckley, or Sir George Buckley at 3M, um, who said the core of every business is dying, right? So he turned around 3M at a particular point in time after the financial crisis by sustaining, refocusing and sustaining investments in R&D. What I thought very interesting point of view was it's not just about how do you manage through a crisis, but every business has a dying core because that's the old heart of the business and then a whole set of new things. And the only way you're ever going to be able to grow the business is by making sure you have the balance right between how you manage the decline or the stability of the core and what you do in new areas. George Buckley... (laughs) thinking four, five, six years out, said, we've got to structurally, or in terms of my policies and practices here, get our engineers and scientists focused on bringing out new products. So you can beat the table on that. Uh, And he did, of course, but he also had to find cash to make it happen. And for that, he made some very tough decisions. He sold off a a big pharmaceutical arm, took uh, costs out of other operations, very painful in the short run, but vital for the long term. Yeah, and he, he sort of re-engineered a very, very complicated supply chain, didn't he? And a manuf- he did. manufacturing footprint. And I suppose that's what I was getting at. Uh, managing for the long term is not about being soft. Uh, and, you know, the executives profiled in the book, uh, they did some pretty tough things and some pretty gnarly things to create the flexibility, to generate the cash, to give themselves yeah. the room to maneuver. So I think it's a really critical point, right? This is not about being soft, right? And this is not a book on um, uh, corporate social responsibility, right? There are other very good books on that topic. Uh, and if you look at, um, for example, um, let's take the Larry Merlo story at CVS. So when he and his team made the decision to stop selling cigarettes, not only was that a decision that was only taken after it was extremely well syndicated, extremely well thought through, extremely well managed from the, all the operational details, but also they did it at a time when the company was performing well. He'd earned the right to be able to take that sort of decision. And maybe in a similar vein, yeah. um, uh, Paul Polman at Unilever, when they came under uh, under pressure from uh, from 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 3G, uh, he was able, at least so far, to be able to defend the company uh, by making the case that uh, his uh, his focus on a sustainable company was not a uh, a soft um, decision that was about uh, prioritizing social responsibility um, ahead of. Uh, the, uh, the the successful and profitable growth of the company, but actually making the case that it was that it was both, and that it was not a trade off. And you know that phrase "making a case" is one of the themes that just came out of our discussions with many people that we went to to ask them, "Well, how did you do all this?" And making the case, I wouldn't have guessed this going in, but it's totally evident in talking with people who've done it, like George Buckley at 3M, Alan Mulally at Ford, and Paul Pullman at, at Unilever. They have to make the case to themselves. They have to think strategically. They've got to look four or five years out. What can go right? How is the industry changing? And then they had to put those thoughts into a compelling account. They had to convince equity analysts. They had to convince uh, the big, uh, the buy side, the, the big investors themselves. Uh, but equally, they had to convince their own people and the board of directors. So what is, I think, especially striking and maybe Paul Pullman, Rodney, pick up on this as he made his arguments was his emphasis on 
in maybe a half dozen very specific ways, arguing to his board, talking through his with his investors, his customers as well, what he was going to do as he then began to move Unilever out of um, profitable, but in some cases, unhealthy food products. You can't just say, I'm going to do it. You've got to make a case for it. And that's the essence of strategic thinking and then articulating why we're on this particular path and why the strategy is going to work. Yes, I think one of the things that jumped out at me is uh, many of the CEOs in the book, they're, they're great storytellers. And that ability to construct a narrative, in many cases actually reaching back into the history of the company. So Paul Pullman, for example, taking the whole board of directors up to Port Sunlight in the northwest of England, because that was, uh, that was Unilever's start in a way. And it always had a great tradition of looking after its workforce and thinking about a sort of multi-stakeholder kind of approach to its business. He did that. Alan Mulally, even though he didn't come from the uh, car industry, really sort of reached back into the history of the Ford Motor Company as well. Meaning-making as a leadership trait really comes yeah. out here. And that's a great phrase. And that notion of storytelling is interesting. I wouldn't have thought of it until you asked the question, but when we were talking to um, Larry Fink uh, from BlackRock for the, for the book, uh, he uh, he had the observation that he he and his 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 firm want to hear the stories from CEOs. They don't they don't just want to hear the uh, you know how was this quarter and what's going to be up, what's going to be down next quarter, but what's the what's their consistent story for where the company is trying to go in the long term, and how does this quarter fit in with that with that story? So this idea of CEOs as 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 storytellers, and obviously it has to be a non-fiction story, not a fiction right. story. But this idea of CEOs as storytellers <laughs> to be able to successfully focus on the long term, I think is uh, is exactly uh, is exactly right. And by the way, I think there are two pieces to that storytelling. So it does make meaning. I, I like that phrase, making meaning. The technical features of the argument are really important. So what's it going to cost us, for example, at CVS if we take tobacco off the shelves? And Larry, Larry Merlo, CEO, did estimate it's going to cost at least a billion dollars if he did that. So that's the, <clears throat> call it the, the, uh, the, the content-driven technical argument. The second half of the story is the non-cognitive elements, uh, the history we're part of, the emotions that come to mind when we think about saving many, many lives because they're not getting tobacco when they walk out of our store, but also taking your board to the place where the company was created. Or in the case of Medtronic, the equipment maker, uh, they often bring in patients who are alive today because they use a pacemaker used by Medtronic. So the storytelling or the account giving is maybe a better phrase for it, is both cognitive and then call it emotional, where you got to go for the head and the heart. The other part of the storytelling that a lot of the CEOs deployed was they, they found a metric and they it was a meaningful metric. It sort of encapsulated what they were trying yeah. to do and they stuck to it. I think all of these uh, executives uh, have, uh, have, have, have many metrics. And I think if you're looking to be able to chart a course for the long term, you need to have metrics that cover both performance and also health. So performance would be the typical near-term financial and operating mm -hmm. metrics. And health might be things that give you an indication of are you on track against the strategy, right? It doesn't mean they're softer numbers. They can still be hard numbers like longer-term market share 
or like percentage of revenues that come from newly launched products that I think uh, was one of uh, one of George Buckley's metrics. I know others have used it too. Uh, but you've got metrics that are talking to uh, the, the future direction of the company that are giving you momentum as well as uh, as well as current position. This topic of metrics is one we heard quite a bit from board members as well. We interviewed a number of uh, board directors as well as chief executives for the book. And uh, there was a, a common uh, message from them around wishing they had and valuing when they had the more metrics for the long-term strategy. Yes, and I, I suppose that's what I was, I was thinking about. Maybe the momentum metrics. You have to deliver on the earnings per share, you know, the current, current quarter, current year. But it seems like the, the emphasis on market share that Ivan Seidenberg put out there was to say, okay, you know, we're delivering today, but you've got to look at the momentum, which is, are we winning in the market? Yeah. Or, or <laughs> Sir George Buckley, the um, new product vitality index, I think he called it. How much of our revenue is coming from products that are less than five years old? And we've got to get that up because that's the momentum of the business. So, Simon, this issue of, of momentum is really important in looking at the long run, say three to five years out, uh, we know we want to get there, but we do need interim measures or interim signs that we're going in the right direction. Call that momentum. Particularly when making the right long-term move might actually make you go backwards in some areas in the short term. To be able to justify that, I think you better have your, uh, your, your, uh, your longer-term markers uh, ready to be able to make the, uh, the, uh, the countervailing story. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it ties back to your earlier question around, you know, is the market to blame and maybe how much should CEOs listen to the market when they're making these moves? And I think what we'd say, I'd be interested to see if you agree with this, Mike, I think what we'd say is CEOs should not overly listen to the market in the short term, right? So if you believe 75% of your stock is held by long-term investors, that still means there's a lot of stock held by short-term investors who can create a lot of movement in the short term. But if what you're doing is the right thing, then the long term will win out overall. So it is about being courageous and in some cases being patient. For the book, uh, we did sit down and we talked with uh, the person who was chief executive of Vanguard, the chief executive of BlackRock, and both of them and others in that investment world who preside over trillions of dollars assets, much of it indexed or much of it very permanently invested, they all said... Look, we're in this business together. We're here for the long run. We're indexed. And thus, I think if chief executives just remind themselves that the vanguards, the Black Rocks, the State Streets out are out there are kind of natural allies in helping you think about four or five years out. Yes, because by definition, they can't sell. In fact, there's a lovely quote in the book, isn't there? That uh, well, I think it's somebody from Vanguard says, you know, we may be passive investors, but that doesn't mean that we're passive owners. Right? Yeah. Yes, there's a very interesting debate around the effect that the passive funds are having on long-term focus. And there's one school of thought that said, look, because the passive funds are by definition passive, that means the share of voice in the market is going to go more and more to the people who are moving money actively, okay. which is going to create more short-termism. So that's one possible effect. The other effect would be to say, actually, this is a real opportunity for the passive funds. And if you go back in kind of recent history, you'd say the passive funds had three choices for how they could differentiate. They could differentiate either on their fee structure, they could differentiate on their service offering, or they could differentiate by being better stewards of your assets. And you could argue that the 
basis of competition on the first two of those, price and service, is so narrow now, it really becomes about being a better steward of your assets, which is why we think we see so many of the, uh, the index funds or the big three um, index firms uh, focusing more and more on stewardship and governance uh, as, a, uh, as a topic. Yeah. And, you know, the flip side of that is that if three-quarters of the shares out there are held by the long-term investors, if you're a top executive, a chief financial officer, and a director of investor relations, why not go and actually meet with them, build a relationship with them? And that gets us then to a chapter we wrote on the power of the board to help in this as well. And we reference in particular a person named Maggie Wilderotter, who serving on the Hewlett Packard Enterprise Board uh, said, look, thinking strategically here about the world we're in, uh, we may end up with an activist or two, and they did, and we've got to be prepared to work with that kind of investor if they do come along. And Maggie Wilderotter pressed the, uh, the company to become more savvy about looking at themselves as a activist investor would look at them, and then maybe to make a few changes to help solve the problem before it's brought to their attention by an activist. And I guess that's just to sum up the bigger point here, I think the board of directors here has a particular role to play in working with top management with the equity market. So yeah, the, the role of the board in this is, is fascinating. What's your take on this, Rodney? So we have the view and our interviewees had the view, whether it was the chief executives or the board directors, that there's a greater role for the board to play than, than they, they commonly play. Uh, in particular, you know, piece one, and this, this may sound trite, uh, but uh, we think it's very important. The board has to really understand how the company makes money. And the number of CEOs who will say not everybody on their board really understands how the company makes money now and how the company will make money in the future. And if that basic isn't there, it's pretty hard to have a meaningful conversation about the long term. Um, if that basic is there, then really using the board to shape the direction around long-term strategy. And most boards will say they don't want to be presented to a fully-baked answer on this topic. They want to be part of the discussion. It is one of the places a board can add value. But it needs to be a, a, a real conversation that has with it uh, the, uh, the, the set of both the performance and the health metrics. Uh, and that is a, a, a kind of, you, you end up laying out a, a roadmap that includes a set of markers against which you can then measure the quarterly conversations that you're, you're inevitably going to have to have. And almost all boards, if you ask them what they'd like to spend more time on, what they'd like to spend less time on, this is almost always at or near the top of the list for what the board would like to spend more time on. By the way, if you ask chief executives what they would like to spend more time on with their boards, this is also usually at or near the top of the list. And there aren't many topics where the boards and the CEOs would both like to spend more time. The obvious question is, why isn't it happening? I think it is the pressures of the day-to-day, -day, um, and it is quite hard for, um, chair, for, for board chairs and lead directors to be able to say, look, let's time box the discussion on the day-to-day -day and let's make sure we've got an agenda that really is driven by the long term rather than by the short term. Um, and maybe second mm -hmm. of all, boards may simply just need to spend more time. Yeah. Um, we did an analysis of time spent by board members of public companies versus private companies. And we found as the public company boards are on average bigger 
and on average spend less time. In fact, it was half the time that some private boards spend. And the reality is these are difficult topics, which you know, it's hard to get through if you're going to spend you know, three, four hours a year on it. And uh, it may just require people just to, to, to dig, be able to dig in a little deeper with management to be able to add value yeah. on these topics. Yeah. Is, there, um, is there something that board should be doing around CEO compensation? It's a really important issue in that sometimes we are what we eat or we do what we're paid to do. And so if compensation is geared around primarily leveraged around this year's performance, predictably, there's going to be a lot of focus on this year. Having said that, and having looked at data going back to the early 80s, on the compensation of the top eight people of 40 of America's largest industrial firms, there has been a remarkable sea change in how individuals are paid at the top, the top one and then the next seven. And there's a movement away from fixed compensation, that's good, much more variable, that's good. And the variability depends on the performance, especially total shareholder return to the company. But most important, two-thirds of the compensation now for the top eight people depends on multi-year, essentially stock-based compensation. So some of that is two years, some of that is three years. Let's say that's not terribly long run, but it's unequivocally twice or three times more than one year. And some compensation now uh, with stock options at best after five years actually increasingly are putting that, that long-term plan or that long-term thinking into actually how they're paid. Maybe the only thing I'd add is, look, Mike, I think that's very well said. It's clear there isn't a silver bullet on this one. I think everybody would agree that EPS metrics alone are bad metrics because they're eminently gameable. But almost nobody still does that. And it's probably just as clear that a five-year long-term metric alone is also a bad metric. Totally. And it's going to require an intelligent conversation and a real understanding of the company's context and of what time frame actually makes sense for the company um, to, to be able to get to a good answer. Yeah. What does all of this mean for private companies? We focus very much here on, on publicly uh, listed companies. That's a good question. Um, you know, it's easy, so much of the economy now is owned by private equity owners. And it's easy to stereotype private equity as being short-term owners. Uh, you know, they might only hold a company for three years, five years, maybe seven years at the, uh, at the outside for, for, for most of them. Um, however, we have a couple of observations. So first of all, you know, that is actually even the shorter of those time periods is longer than the average holding period of public market stock. Yes, five, five years is the long term. It, but, right. Uh, and, but, yeah. and in addition, as any private equity leader will tell you, if you're owning a company intending to own it for five years, you're going to sell it to someone who also will intend to own it for at least five years. So you have to have at least a 10-year plan with that company. And being able to have a 10-year plan, plus or minus, away from the pressures of the public markets with quarterly reporting can be a very beneficial thing. Now, does that mean all private equity companies automatically uh, act with the best long-term interest in mind? No, of course it doesn't. But I think it also, mean, it, it also means it's, uh, it's grossly unfair to characterize that as a more short-term form of ownership. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that raises the, the sort of bigger point that actually the ownership structure of the business, who owns the equity and the attitude that they bring to the table and how you as a management team engage with them and the relationship you have can be a form of competitive advantage, right? Uh, just for public companies, investor relations, 
really courting long-term owners, really getting under the hood with them so that you understand jointly the, the strategy. Investor relations isn't just something that's a sort of passive answering questions from equity analysts kind of thing, or it doesn't need to be that. In fact, I think on investor relations, we've uh, kind of witnessed without quite appreciating that it's there kind of a quiet revolution on how that particular function has has morphed from giving information to the equity market when questions are asked to a much more proactive and, quote, strategically driven agenda. So I think we all know that typical investor relations director will report to the chief financial officer, but the director of investor relations uh, is also in touch with all kinds of parts of the firm, other with the top talent people, often very actively working with the non-executive directors as well to not just be a source of questions that come from the market, but to take a role in helping the company work with the market to the company's advantage. And this is a little bit over the top, but on a prior a project I was involved in, talking with some of the people who are directors of investor relations or chief financial officers, kind of the, the next step up, uh, they so often would talk about how vital it is to bring in investors that fit their profile for the kind of strategy they're pursuing. And I think what's happened in recent years at many of the larger firms is that that investor relations job has been professionalized and disciplined around what we're talking about. So I think we can have a long debate as to, to what extent companies really are able to, uh, to choose their investors, right? Of course, they can't in a technical sense, um, but there are three things they can do that we think have a very significant influence on the investors they end up with. First of all, arguably the most important decision that investor relations makes or the CEO and CFO plus investor relations makes together is on which investors to spend time with. So are you spending your time with people who are the long-termers and who are the fundamental uh, owners um, uh, versus the short-termers? Um, are you spending your time with people who um, uh, who you feel have a reason and an interest in understanding your stock and understanding your story versus the people who are more uh, more kind of the, the in and out? Uh, and just also even more specifically, you're spending your time on the buy side versus the sell side. The sell side, of course, will always want to meet you and will always want to be able to write a story. Uh, but uh, the value of time spent with them versus time spent with the buy side has to be weighed very carefully. And the buy side is the actual, the owning institutions, right? Yes. As opposed to the intermediaries, the investment yes. banks and so yes, on. Yes, 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 who are writing research reports and so on. Yeah. Um, so that would be choice one. Um, choice two would then be what you choose to talk about, right? You, of course, have to talk about performance and have to give financial information, but how much do you choose to talk about strategy and direction, right? And when you read investor presentations from different companies, the extent to which it is, you know, there's a set of numbers that everybody has, but the extent to which it is uh, talking about the long-term strategy uh, in, a, uh, in, in, a in a specific way rather than just one general introduction slide versus the numbers differs hugely between different companies in the same industry. And then the third thing is what you do on, uh, on guidance. And, uh, you know, the, certainly there are many a uh, chief executive or chief financial officer who would like to wave a magic wand and make the obligation to give guidance go away. Uh, I don't think we see that happening wholesale. Um, but, um, you know, we would probably say that companies shouldn't be giving quarterly guidance, right? Certainly you need to give quarterly results, but quarter to quarter guidance 
may well be a, a step too far in terms of creating a straitjacket for yourself uh, with a, a, on short-term focus. And by the way, to anchor this in some of the accounts we offered up here, a Paul Pullman, CEO at Unilever, when he embarked on the kind of remake of the company along the lines we earlier described, one thing he pretty quickly um, decided to do was to stop offering quarterly guidance. So I think that's all we have time for today. Thank you very much, Mike Usim and Rodney Zemel, for being with us today. And thanks to you, our listeners. If you want to buy the book, Go Long, Why Long-Term Thinking is Your Best Short-Term Strategy, look for it in all the places that you buy your books. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people and our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook.